Library Fugitives, a support group for people who get lost in the stacks. And welcome to our very special holiday episode. <laughs> we don't have jingle bells. So. I'm Molly, a depressed Mrs. Claus who can't get out of bed. And I am Lindsay, uh, but Santa just calls me elf number three, and that, among other reasons, is why I think we should unionize against him. We would like to dedicate this episode to my friend Matt, who unfortunately passed away a few weeks ago. Matt, wherever you are, buddy, you were a light and hysterical, and I I miss you every day. All right. Well, you notice we this is our very special holiday episode, not necessarily Christmas. Now, not only are we releasing this on New Year's Eve, so it's not on Christmas, but why is it not titled Christmas episode, Molly? Because while Lindsay and I both did Christmas books, because this is our special edition episode, we each did a non-Christmas book as well. Because there are far more holidays in the wintertime than just Christmas, and they deserve to get some highlighting. Exactly. So I did Hanukkah, and Lindsay did Yule. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I will say... Uh, for our Christmas books in particular, Molly decided to do one of the pivotal Christmas <sighs> books ever. Like, I it's love one, this book. It's one that everyone knows. And in fact, um, they are really, did you see that new trailer for the new Scrooge movie where <sighs> Luke Evans is singing? No, I did not. And I honestly don't want to, but anyway. Oh, you need to hear his singing. It is delightful. Anyway, Lindsay chose a book that is not typically considered Christmas literature, but she's going to be doing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It is definitely Christmas. The listeners will understand. I will go into a full rant about it. But that being said, um, let's dive in. Well, I also want to say uh, I am going to be doing, um, for my book about Hanukkah, I'm going to be doing The Matzah Ball by Jean Meltzer. And um, I'm going to be doing... The Spirit of Yule by Thomas Roswell. It is a hoot and a half, y'all. We are going to have a good time. Okay, so I'm going to be real. The first bit of this is going to sound like a fever dream. Um, (laughs) Because honestly, I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking for in the first place. Now, don't don't worry. I was not on any kind of drugs or alcohol uh, when I thought of this. But that's what this is going to sound like. Um... You get it. I mean, you remember having like a favorite show or book growing up, but years down the road as an adult, you can't place the name of the show or any of the characters, but you remember. You have this vague idea. Yeah. 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 Like for me, that was the, um, the Sagwa, the Chinese Siamese cat cartoon. I forgot about that. Yeah. Where there's like mooncakes and they live and they help do like calligraphy with their tails and they live in like this tree of cubbies and stuff. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, anyways, um, <laughs> as we as we devolve into Sagwa, the Chinese Siamese cat, <laughs> I digress back to my original point. For the longest time since graduating from college, I've had fond memories of different classes uh, that I took that were on special topics, uh, including a Tolkien class, ultimate favorite. But I also took a semester long course on Christmas literature. Yes. That is a real thing. (laughs) Yes, my university's literature department is full of super nerdy professors, and I loved it. Like, they were what made my college worth it in the end, even after I was not impressed with the institution as a whole, the English department. I was going to say, given given what uh, college you went to. Yep. And we're we're not going to go any further than that. We are not. 
<laughs> Maybe we'll do a story time one time, but not today. Uh, one memory that I do hold of that really fun Christmas class is watching a uh, graphics video version of a story about a man who finds himself caught up in a feast full of pagans celebrating the winter solstice, or Yule. Uh, my only strong memory of this story is a close-up drawing of the man's horrified facial expression with the audio in the background chanting, Yule. 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 But it's one of my most vivid thoughts from this class, and it's enough that it's broken Molly, apparently. <laughs> um, I was literally, like, pounding my fists and leaning into the mic, so that probably didn't help no, not the at fact all. that it made her laugh. So, even though that's, like, my, like, one of my few really vivid memories of this, like, class i honestly like would quote it back and forth with my classmates we would find any excuse to to quote that that just that small portion of the video the yule 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 part so it would be like oh yeah i mean what you'll be doing later i'm like did you say yule and they're like no 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 and i'm like too late (laughs) (laughs) um so, like, when preparing for this holiday episode, I could not think of another, um, like, story that wasn't directly related to Christmas, but still around the holiday season that elicited such, like, a visceral memory um, from such a small portion. Like, it was literally, it's like literally maybe a 10 second bit. So, like, it literally was so much that I had to absolutely cover it. But the only problem, I couldn't remember the title initially. Um, so, cue nearly an hour of fruitless Google searches uh, <laughs> until I turned to my last hope, the chaotic wasteland that is YouTube. Well, I mean, this possibly should have gone in our I Forgot It episode, but... Oh, 100%. Um, <clears throat> but... Here's the thing. It fits so much better for our holiday episode. Yes, of course. It's going to be so fun. Um, And I literally typed out, in all caps, YUL, 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 <laughs> and then all lowercase, story, uh, and prayed to Odin that the right video would pop up. <laughs> and it did. Don't let your mom know you prayed to Odin. Oh, well, she doesn't know a lot of things about me. She's fine. <laughs> uh, so here we are, the spirit of YUL, and... Uh, Before I go into the actual story, I do want to give any of our listeners that aren't familiar with the concept of Yule a bit of background information. You might have heard of Yuletide in a lot of Christmas stories and songs, but Yule itself... Yuletide carols being sung by a fire. Sorry to offend if I'm out of tune. I have a tin ear. (laughs) Yule itself is one of the oldest winter celebrations in the world, celebrated on winter solstice, and it, like, initially was entirely separate from Christmas. But as Christians do, we tend to um, appropriate things. <laughs> yep. The whole reason that Christmas is in December is because the Christians wanted to get rid of the pagans. Yep. So they conflated the holiday with Yule to uh, kind of eliminate that. It's, yeah. So a lot of things we can comment on, but... Yule itself, like all of its old traditions in Old English and Norse traditions, um, Yule actually refers to the midwinter festival being held on the winter solstice, uh, kind of allows it 
a little bit more to celebrate the reappearance of the sun and the land's rebirth because you know winter solstice longest night of the year and then um, the sun starts showing up for longer periods of time mm -hmm. most of the festivities include feasting and general revelries so you know drinking dancing and wassailing which means caroling not to be confused with wassail the beverage made of mold cider or wine however i think it's really funny if they get this mold wine and they just got shit faced and then just went out and started singing like they're uh, here we go wassailing among the leaves so green <laughs> I'm going to be doing this the entire episode. Oh, same. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, like we mentioned, Christianity has taken quite a few of the Yule and Solstice traditions for Christmas. Uh, colonization. Anyways, the lights could be inspired by the burning of the Yule log to herald the sun's return, as well as the Christmas tree originally having ties to evergreen boughs, uh, which in Yule was to remind that all green plants would soon start growing again. It's a really lovely concept. Yeah. And we just ruined it. <laughs> we say we because Lindsay and I were both raised in um, very fundamentalist Christian, Christian backgrounds. Yeah. And now we're kind of in the process of finding ourselves, finding ourselves, deconstructing the harmful stuff and figuring out what we do actually believe so yeah you know just to get a little bit deep there in the holiday <clears throat> episode anyways back to the story <laughs> i'm not gonna spoil all of it for y'all but i am going to play a brief section of it uh so oh please tell me that it's oh i hope this is what i think it is okay here we go but ahead i heard with relief the sound of merriment and the smell of a log fire as we drew near to the source of the noise I saw what seemed to be an unusually long thatched cottage without windows. The knight moved silently over the hard rhyme, as though his great frame carried no weight at all. The only sound was the savage, rhythmic chanting from within the cottage. He strode to the door and pushed it open, beckoning me inside. But I stepped not into a cottage, but a grand mead hall like those of Anglo-Saxon antiquity. About a long table stood tall masked men adorned in furs and bright clothes of an almost oriental style woven with ornate patterns. I shrunk in horror at the terrifying sight of the enormous spears and short swords which they waved aloft and the rhythmically pounded the bell in time to a primitive and unholy chanting. At first, I could not decipher the screams beneath the hideous mask, but as I gathered my senses, I realized it was a single word. some cannibal jungle tribe mocking the sacred day of our lord jesus christ transfixed in terror i had not yet thought to flee but by the time the notion gripped me it was too late for they had stopped and turned toward me in silence a large man adorned with gold jewelry stood at the head of the table and removed his horn mask to reveal a fierce bearded face do you guest enter my hall to worship the father of yule he boomed of course, I replied. I uh, am a pious Englishman who loves the season as much as any other. I am ever so sorry for disturbing you, only I... You shall drink of the meat horn with us, he shouted while raising his arms, a signal which prompted the whole hall to erupt into merriment. 
The men laid down their weapons and removed their masks and skins of wolves, bears, and boars to reveal, to my surprise, typically English faces that one may find in any church. Then, beautiful girls appeared, bearing enormous horns, gilt with gold foil and brimming with what I assumed to be honey mead. One was handed to the master of the hall, who raised it aloft and cried out, To the Yule Father! <laughs> then he drank a long draught, and the horns were passed around. Still cold from the forest, I was gratefully warmed by the sweet spice brew. Okay, so there's a lot more that happens, um, and when I tell you the graphics, are, I'm, I'm truly sorry that you listeners at the moment cannot see the visuals accompanying the story right now. Oh my god. But like, <laughs> I did. <laughs> but Molly did. <laughs> um, but you can go check out The Spirit of Yule, A Christmas Origins Story on YouTube to get the full effect. It, it is worth it. Um, things get even like more intense as you go on, but it was, it is quite possibly one of the weirdest things. Even watching it in real time and not just remembering it, it felt like a fever dream, didn't it? A little just bit. looking at it, you're like, hmm. A little bit. This is this is real? Okay. Um, <laughs> but it's wild. And of course, in it, you know, without going into spoilers, the idea that people that celebrate Yule are these horrible, monstrous people, um, when actually they're just normal people. And obviously later in the story things change and he's like, oh, they are monsters. But you know, again, I like to focus on the idea that everybody just wants community. Everybody just yeah. wants, you know, warmth and sharing and caring about each other. And regardless of their religion or traditions or backgrounds, everybody deserves to have that. And so that's like a serious take on this. Because it's not just all goofiness, although yeah. it is very goofy <laughs> and weird. Um, but just that idea that, you know, behind the mask of, you know, Yule, there is a desire for warmth and growth and the return of spring and life on Earth. So it's just a, it's a, it was a fun little thing. And I'm glad that, you know, I got to share part of it with you guys. Cause it really, it's so fun. And I still, <laughs> it's, it's wild. I really think you guys should all go watch it like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so there it is. The spirit of Yule by Thomas Roswell. Okay. So I chose Hanukkah and that means I chose the matzo ball by Jean Meltzer. Um, the Matzo Ball is a book about Rachel Rubenstein Goldblatt, a Jewish girl with a shameful secret. She loves Christmas. <laughs> She's actually a pretty successful romance novelist under the pen name Margot Cross. All Christmas romance books. A couple have even been turned into <gasps> Hallmark movies. No way. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> but her biggest problem is this. Not only is her mother a brilliant reproductive specialist, Dr. Rubenstein, her father is Rabbi Aaron Goldblatt, the most high profile of rabbis as you can basically get. And she loves Christmas. That's rough. <laughs> 
Um, before I get too much in further into the plot, which I will, um, I wanted to give a little bit of background on Hanukkah, which is going to be a very truncated version because I could I could go into this all day. Um, Hanukkah is comparatively a minor holiday to something like Yom Kippur mm-hmm. in um, Judaic holidays. It just gets conflated a lot because it's around the Christmas time. I get to that. I get to that. You got to interject in my things. <laughs> um, but Hanukkah is... There was a Jewish revolt in the 160s BCE um, to take back the temple, the temple, from the Syrians, who were also Greek at this time. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, they managed to take back the temple, but it had been desecrated. Uh, turned into a temple for Zeus. Pigs, which were an unclean animal, had been sacrificed at the altar, and the stores of holy oil had been defiled. Only one container was found, still sealed, and it only had enough oil to burn for one night. Amazingly, it lasted for eight, which is where we get the eight nights of Hanukkah. Uh, Again, that was a very brief and horribly shortened version of the history. for that i am sorry but the reason hanukkah seems like it's such a big deal to the gentiles is because it gets conflated with christmas Mm -hmm. um, as it usually falls in december though it's set by the hebrew calendar and can fall in november as well now rachel rubenstein goldblatt Uh, the book opens with an email from her agent telling her that there's a meeting with her publishing house the next day and then we roll into rachel needing just one more one more, we discover, is a collectible Santa figurine. She just manages to get her Christmas office door closed before her mother comes in with food, suggesting that Rachel looks pale. And Rachel is pale. She has myelagic encephalomyosis, which if I said that incorrectly, I apologize. Um, it's more commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Rachel hates how CFS sounds to other people. Like, she's just lazy all the time, when someday she literally doesn't have the energy to get out of bed. She's got to save all the energy she has for this big meeting with her publisher. Her best friend, Mickey, the gay black son of two white lesbian Jewish moms, (laughs) uh, is helping her save spoons by picking her up the one last Santa figurine from the post office. Nice. And now we're going to devolve into spoon theory very briefly. Um... Spoon theory, for those of you who don't know, um, is a way to explain to other people why you don't have the energy, even though your disability might be invisible. Um, You have so many spoons allotted a day. You know, for some people, you know, getting up and getting ready in the morning is one spoon. For some people, getting out of bed is a spoon. Brushing your teeth is a spoon. Taking a shower is a spoon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can borrow from the next day's spoons, but eventually it's going to hit you and you're going to crash. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, relate to her on that level. <laughs> oh, 100%. And I think especially, like, you get into, like, the spoon theory and then also, like, the holiday season, seasonal, oh, like, my God, mental it's awful. health, seasonal depression. Ugh. I have a shirt that I love and I can't find enough places to wear it to um it says just a spoony girl living in a forked up world (laughs) (laughs) okay so i killed Lindsay. (laughs) it's still me getting over you know the plague but not that plague (laughs) no just the proverbial plague (laughs) um 
But Rachel's mom leaves just in time for her friend to drop off the Christmas figurine, but not before dropping a bomb on Rachel. Mm. Jacob Greenberg, her first crush and now arch enemy from Hebrew camp, is coming for Hanukkah and is going to be staying with her parents for Shabbat. So we got unrequited love. We got friends to enemies to lovers, maybe? they were in a relationship for like a week in Hebrew camp, and then he humiliated her. And she kind she went home after that, and she's just like, "No, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore." Does Doctor Rubenstein explain herself? Uh, kind of. Um, Rachel's mother is constantly trying to set her up with men, but uh, Jacob is the last straw for Rachel. Um, however, he has become a big event planner in the last couple decades, and he's in town to throw the matzo ball max, a matzo ball to end all matzo balls. I'm going to mention now that not only are matzo balls a very delicious food, but they are actual balls put on by Jewish folks in December to fight Christmas, essentially. Nice. Uh, thus, we begin our point of view swapping. The next chapter is from Jacob's point of view, where he's in a French airport with his business partner. We learn that Jacob's mom passed away from breast cancer in the last couple of years while she'd already been suffering from MS. That is a lot. Yeah. Um, His parents are also divorced, and it's a whole big thing, and it's just a mess. Uh, His business partner tells him it would be great to get Rabbi Goldblatt's blessing for the ball, and Jacob determines that this is just what they need to make it, you know, the best matzo ball ever. The matzo ball max. Is that an actual quote? Yeah, uh, no. That is a... That's a mollyism? Yes. Okay. Uh, That's a summary of, like, the entire chapter. So... Rachel makes it to her meeting with her publisher, barely, uh, and receives a shock. They are going to drop her unless she writes a Hanukkah romance. She spends the day frantically searching for inspiration, but finds nothing. She just makes it to her parents' house for Shabbat, where she finally runs into her nemesis. They make it through dinner without being too awful to each other, when Jacob announces he has two tickets to the Matzo Ball Max left, an event that has been sold out for months. They're for her parents, and Rachel realizes that this is the inspiration she's been searching for. She has to get into this event. Unfortunately, it really is sold out. Jacob tells her that if she can volunteer for a week to help with setup, she can come. But with Rachel's CFS, she thinks it just might kill her, literally. Jacob doesn't know about her CFS. No one does. As the daughter of one of the most well-respected rabbis in the U.S., she's always supposed to have been perfect, and CFS is not perfect. She agrees to do it anyway, and in another email, these things are scattered throughout the book. It's just these little emails. Uh, She tells her agent so. Jacob, after staying with her family for Shabbat, goes to Uh, his ancient yet spry Bobby's house. That is his grandmother. Uh, He begins to rekindle the prank war that had led to his and Rachel's camp romance. He makes a giant matzo ball costume that he forces Rachel to wear for her first day of volunteering. He accidentally turns her into a meme in the process, which impresses his shareholders And he needs good numbers online if this ball is going to be profitable for those shareholders. I can't imagine Rachel would be very happy about being made a meme while in a matzo ball suit. Oh, she was not. She was very much not. (laughs) 
Rachel is exhausted at the end of the day, but pushes through the next, where Jacob has made her the childcare matzo ball. She's still in the matzo ball costume, but is also taking care of Richie Rich Bratz. Lovely. <laughs> this does not work. And after rolling down an access ramp and breaking the giant menorah that Jacob has custom built for this event, uh, she quits. And it is it is very violent quitting, too. Fair. Also, um, he can't even really get mad at her for rolling and breaking the thing, because he's the one that made her be in the costume. So, logically, it's all his fault. Exactly. Um, Jacob comes by her apartment later that night to apologize and give her a ticket. But Rachel yells at him. He goes to her mother, who explains the whole CFS thing to him. So, Jacob after, you know, seeing his mom go through MS, hires a magical Mary Poppins carer for Rachel. It gives her time to recover while the carer and cleaners take care of her apartment. Jacob also sends a gorgeous dress for her to wear to the ball, and he even bedazzles a wheelchair for her. Nice. Yeah. To Rachel's surprise, she goes out with him, and it doesn't suck. Unfortunately, the ball seems to be sucking. Everything is cheap and tacky to Jacob, and the giant menorah seems to be beyond repair. Rachel sees this and takes over. She calls in all of their friends from Hebrew camp and completely turns it around, from the decor to the food to the entertainment, overseeing it all from her sparkly wheelchair. Jacob is utterly astonished, especially at the fact that she manages to fix the impossibly broken menorah. I should mention at this point that Rachel's Hanukkah romance is in the process of being written. The Hanukkah Grinch, whose leading man is a thinly veiled and uncomplimentary version of Jacob. Of course. But Rachel has been rethinking the book lately. After single-handedly saving the ball, Rachel invites Jacob up to her now beautiful apartment thanks to his Mary Poppins. Rachel steps into the bathroom for a moment and Jacob hears something from her office. It sounds disturbingly like Christmas carols and a model train. That's because it is. Rachel has her office set so that it literally goes off every hour. Jacob is bemused. Then he starts looking closer. Rachel has all of Margot Cross's books. You know, okay, she likes them. There's also posters from her movies, so she's a little obsessed. He's still finding it kind of funny. Daughter of a rabbi obsessed with Christmas. But why does she have Margot Cross's book awards? Then he sees the story on her computer and almost loses it. When Rachel comes into the office and Jacob asks her point blank if she's cross, Rachel does what she's always done in the past. She lies and denies it. Girl. Jacob storms out, infuriated, and Rachel takes one of her Santa figurines, the last Santa figurine, and throws it against the wall, shattering it. Also, question, is he more mad about the unflattering portrayal or the fact that she lied? It's kind of both. Okay. Like, he could have lived with the unflattering portrayal if she'd told him the truth. Yeah. But I'm not going to reveal anything more than that. That's rude. <laughs> You're pulling a me. Yes. And I don't like it. <laughs> now you know how I feel. <laughs> but it just means you got to read the damn book. Oh, I 100% will. It's immediately on my TBR. Um... I also left out a whole subplot with Jacob's dad, and I love his bube. His bube is amazing. <laughs> She's 91 and is coming back from Thailand, like, where she wrote elephants. Like, she's she's crazy. I love her. Um, there's one thing I did notice while reading this book. 
Um, and it's something I've noticed in, in other fiction as well. Um, Jewish people don't like to write out the word God, G-O-D. Mm -hmm. This is because he instructed them to destroy anything and everything associated with their rivals' gods, and they are not to let this happen with their own. So most Jews write G slash D to prevent others from destroying his name. Mm -hmm. Meltzer takes a slightly different tack, and she uses God, G-A-W-D, instead. Nice. Oh my God. Love it. Um, another thing I noticed was when I was reading her bio is that Rachel very much is based on Jean. She has CFS. It hit while she was in rabbinical school, though Rachel's was in college and they both became writers. Jean's dad is also a rabbi. And, you know, this like goes on and on and on. And for that, I say good for her. All right. Um, Jacob, Write yourself a self-insert fiction. And Come on. Honestly, Jacob is kind of based on her, too, because she studied dramatic writing at NYU and um, has earned numerous awards for her work in television, including a daytime Emmy. And isn't that the life of a writer, though? Like, you imbue a little bit of yourself in, like, your different characters. Yep. Um, the last thing I really want to say about this is in the jacket author description. Uh, it says that when her chronic illness forced her to withdraw from school, her father told her she should write a book. Just not a Jewish one, because no one reads those. Next paragraph, indent, the matzo ball is her first novel. <laughs> And that about wraps it up until Lindsay actually reads the book. Oh, I 100% will. You have convinced me. Yay! All right, time to go on to the next book. Now, this is a holiday special, you might be saying. So why is Lindsay talking about Narnia? Well, my skeptical <laughs> listeners, I have undeniable proof that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis is centered around Christmas. My first piece of evidence. Um, we've already talked about it, but I did, in fact, enroll in a Christmas literature class back in my college English days. And guess what book was a part of the syllabus? What? Go on. Guess. Mm -hmm. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Wrong. Um, actually, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I even wrote my term paper for the class on this book. Will I be recycling ideas from that paper for this podcast? Never. On another note, um, if this at all sounds like an essay, no, it doesn't. Mind your business. Uh, will it still be one of my favorite episodes we've done so far? Uh, definitely. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I've, I've recycled papers before. It's fine. And honestly, with Narnia, even just before the class, it just felt like Christmas to me. I literally watched the movie adaptation that came out in the 2000s every Christmas. It feels like holiday nostalgia to me. Which is fine, you know? Yeah. I Your mileage may vary. A hundred percent. If anyone is unfamiliar with the concept of the Chronicles of Narnia, let me set the scene. <laughs> Four siblings during World War II are sent away from London to the English countryside for their safety, taken in by a centric old man in his mansion. Now, today, this would not happen. Oh, yeah, things are wild right now. You know where you would be safe? In the home of a stranger, an old man. Many miles away but that we don't know. But see, this was a thing that they did in World War II. No, I know, because they needed to get the kids out, so, because they wouldn't be... They didn't want the kids to die. Yeah, uh, like, I get it. I'm just saying it's so funny when you think about it today. Like, n like just, yeah, I'm going to send you with a stranger. An old man, even, yeah. uh, that specifically requested that he be allowed to host young children. That's just wild when you think about it. Well, if he's got the space. If he's got the space still 
wouldn't wouldn't fly today but no worries this old man is quite wonderful and not at all like you would worry about in today's world so peter susan edmund and lucy pevensey are quite lucky in that regard um and they do find some ways to entertain themselves but they're all like different ages uh -huh. like so you know things run out eventually and they fall back on what every group of children through teenagers through i've even done it with adults sometimes um fall back on hide and seek uh-huh <laughs> uh, during this game of hide-and-seek, Lucy hides in a wardrobe in the spare room, uh, falling through it and into Narnia for the first time. Now, Lucy, as she's getting in this wardrobe and trying to scoot to the back, and it doesn't have a back, she's not scared. She's like, huh, that's weird. I would be freaking the fuck out. Well, <laughs> she's also like, what, eight? She's eight years old, but still, concept of space. I should have hit it at some point. Maybe if there's no back, I should just not move any further backwards i would have never discovered narnia apparently i'm realizing <laughs> <laughs> but when she falls literally into narnia for the first time it's stunning it's covered in snow and it's look it's like a postcard and quite literally she meets a fawn like holding packages so like he's going to post packages <sighs> sorry and i'm just I'm visually seeing Mr. Tumnus from the movie, and oh uh, my god. James McAvoy. <gasps> Have you seen the video he did where he goes over his iconic roles? Like, No, I haven't. I need to. Okay, here's the thing. James McAvoy has three eras I have found, used to be two, in which he is very attractive. Mr. Tumnus, obviously, is the childhood. Uh, <laughs> also, he was in that movie, Penelope, with Christina Ricci. Yes. Um, loved him in that. That was like the teenager version of me that was really happy. And then now, specifically from the thumbnail of this video, I hadn't seen him in a hot minute, but like, mm -hmm. I don't say this lightly, but... I'm going to be telling on myself literally the first <laughs> word out of my mouth. I was by myself was daddy. <laughs> and I don't say that very often. <laughs> we were talking about Christmas. We need yes, to get back wait, to that before I, before I tell Sorry I derailed anymore. that. No. Anyways, um, the fawn, who is a half man, half goat named Tumnus, tells Lucy that a powerful white witch has taken control over Narnia. Lucy returns to our world and informs her siblings who do not believe her. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I don't know that I would necessarily believe either of my brothers if they came in and said, I fell through the back of the closet and guess what? I mean, fair, but also it's very funny that they're like, well, logically. And then the professor's like, who cares about logic? <laughs> so they don't believe her. But then Edmund follows her back into narnia one time and he runs into a woman clothed all in white who promises he'll be made a prince if only he brings all of his siblings to her obviously um because of the laws of plot device all of the siblings <laughs> end up in narnia at some point and um they find out that tumnus has been taken in by the white witch uh for helping lucy escape uh, the Pevensies then learn that they are part of a prophecy to defeat the White Witch and rule over Narnia as kings and queens, which is pretty epic, if I have to say so myself. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just remembering how Tolkien and 
Oh my God, why can't I remember C.S. Lewis? Yeah, C.S. Lewis. Uh, <laughs> the author really... of the book we're talking about right now? Yes, I'm sorry. But they were really good friends, and so you see a lot of parallels in all of their work. Oh, 100%. And um, Tolkien was like, you can't put a lamp in a fantasy story. And Lewis was like, guess what? I already did. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> brave words from a man whose middle name was Staples. Yeah, but also brave man talking <laughs> to him when his friends called him Jert. J-R-R-T. They literally <laughs> called him Jert. It was weird. Anyways. <laughs> back to Christmas and Narnia. Sorry. Uh, when Lucy meets Tumnus... He informs her that it is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long, and that the witch chooses to exert her power over Narnians by making it always winter and never Christmas. In doing so, she takes away the freedom found in the passage of time. Because if you think about it, they are trapped forever in one season, one weather. You have, you know, daytime and nighttime, but beyond that, you will lose track of days, weeks, you get stuck in the idea that nothing is ever going to change. So seasonal depression. Yes, 100%. <laughs> and this really does shock the Pevensey siblings when they hear it, since Christmas is something consistently present in their world and, I guess, ours. And here's the thing. It's not just about the fact that it's Christmas that is taken away. It's the fact that Christmas traditions varying on the region and individuals but generally promoting like merriment and fellowship and friendship for the witch. Like she targets a time centered on joy and peace. It's her way of freezing out those elements. It's her way of taking that away. Did you just say freezing out those elements? Yes, I did. <laughs> I think if they recast and did, you know, those things where they recast and do like Disney princesses, this different characters and different books and stuff. She would also would be the white witch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but she literally takes away the elements of joy and peace since they would undermine her veneer of power. And furthermore, Christmas comes after winter solstice in which it's night and it's the longest night and it's cold and it's the longest period within a day of the year of this darkness and this cold. And the witch not only seeks to take away Christmas, but she wants to keep Narnia forever in the dark and cold, never to slowly see the sun come back for longer each day, never able to know that, that life is going to come back to their world. So, yes, it's about Christmas, but also at large, it's taking away hope from the people of Narnia. And the first evidence that Jadis, the White Witch, that her hold on Narnia is weakening arrives in the form of Father Christmas. Now, this is not your regular, I'm Santa Claus, I'm in a velvet suit, and I eat cookies, and I come down chimneys, and I look like a jolly old man. Which was invented by Coca-Cola in the 1950s. It, this is Father Christmas. He is wearing robes, he's got a sword, he's a fucking badass. <laughs> and he literally is like, oh. No, I'm not going to give you little dolls or things for presents. I'm going to give you some kick-ass presents to win this war. And he does. Uh, but when he comes upon the uh, Pevensies and their new allies, the Beavers, as they seek out Aslan to help save Narnia. The Jesus Lion. The Jesus Lion. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
he reveals that he has been kept out by the witch for the length of a long winter, but he's gotten in at last. So he like sneaks in. He's like, fuck you. I'm bringing Christmas back to the Narnians. Uh, he gives each of the Pevensies exactly what they will need in the coming time. Uh, kind of like physical symbols of returning hope and goodness. Uh, we're going to get into later in the story the impact of these Christmas presents. But Lucy receives cordial, which is like a little healing potion for any injuries, as well as a dagger. Susan is gifted a bow that will not easily miss according to Father Christmas, and then receives a horn that will always bring help when used. Peter's gifts include a shield emblazoned with a lion, as well as a sword named Rindon. So, Father Christmas, he's not only giving gifts to our main characters, but he's also bringing back celebration to other Narnians that cross his path. Jadis and her company come across a gathering of Narnians having a Christmas feast, which causes her to grow angry and turn them all to stone. Because she's like, um, what the fuck? <laughs> it's getting warmer, and now you're having a Christmas feast? I think not. Um, it's because parts of her powers are being stolen back, so she has to exert what little remaining control she has to, like, give the idea that she's still in control, that she still has the authority that she wants to. Um, but circling back to the gifts that Father Christmas gives to the Pevensies, they have importance beyond just the idea of, oh, the initial, the witch's power is weakening, Christmas is back. They have importance to the plot. Not only does Lucy use her cordial to heal the injuries from the battle, um, in the end, but she also proves um just how fierce she is and willing to fight even just with her little dagger and she's like i got this and she's like a badass but also willing to do it to protect her family and peter himself is has he's the oldest sibling you know he's there his whole point is we need to get home i need to protect my family i need to protect my siblings like i don't want this so he is given not only a shield because he is a protector but he is also given a sword that is called like the sword of light and he is not only forging ahead as a protector of his family and of narnia but also as a sort of savior and not in like the religious sense but in the idea of someone being put into a role to help break them out of this curse and just that on top of itself is wild. The fact that like it helps win the war and Susan, oh my gosh, I could talk forever about Susan. <laughs> We're not going to talk forever about Susan, but. But just that Susan has the bow that she is able to fight and protect. That's the whole idea of is just protecting your people, protect whether that be your family or the other you know, people you find yourself going through life with, and the horn of calling for help, because needing help is not a bad thing. Being vulnerable is not a bad thing. And again, I do not know if C.S. Lewis intended to have any of these things, any of these little things I'm reading into it within the story when he wrote it, but I take that away from it. And just the idea that all of that started because of these specific Christmas gifts that Father Christmas gave them. And 
I will say a large portion of the movie, especially in the later half, you know, the powers are weakening. The winter is gone. Christmas happens and goes away. So it's not entirely all about Christmas, but because Christmas is the first sign that the powers are weakening and the gifts that they receive from Father Christmas have lasting impact on the rest of the story, Christmas is still there, even when it appears to have left. Um, so that, the snow, the coziness, like who doesn't want to be in a little beaver's house, um, <laughs> getting tea and jam and having them tell you that you are part of a prophecy to save the world. And, you know, it's just fun. It's just fun. And you may not think that this is a Christmas story, but I do. And I will continue to watch it every Christmas. Um, and also probably just every time it snows. <laughs> Which is fun. rare here, it but... Really is, but <clears throat> you know what? Dreams can happen. So I would like to thank you guys for listening to my debate. Even if you don't think I won, I think I won. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so buckle up. This one's going to be a long one. Hold on to your butts, folks. <laughs> um, a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. A Christmas Carol is one of those stories that's considered a timeless classic, and for good reason. It was originally published in 1843 and is still kicking around today in one form or another. My copy is from 1931, not to brag, uh, but most people are familiar with... Don't lie to them. Not to brag. On bragging. Yeah. I love old books. I have a shelf of them, and I'm really proud of A Christmas Carol. Um, most people are familiar with or have at least heard of The Muppets A Christmas Carol, but I have to say, if you want a completely true ad adaptation, which, I mean, honestly, Muppets does a really good job, especially with the costuming, like, it's perfect, um, but the truest adaptation that I have found is the animated version starring Jim Carrey, which is everyone's nightmare. It's creepy as hell, but it's the most accurate. Like, I had my book in front of me as I was watching it, and it's the most accurate. Well, and we all know TikTok's favorite new audio is from the new movie in which Luke Evans sings. And Luke Evans, he's kicking ass while he's singing, but I don't like the fact that people are now thirsting over Scrooge because of how Luke Evans' voice sounds. Yeah. That's a little weird. I'm not as TikTok as much as you <clears throat> on a TikTok as much as you are. Yeah, I have more TikTok than you. So, anyway, um, A Christmas Carol is actually quite a short story and honestly would be even shorter if Dickens had had an editor. <laughs> it takes four pages to get to our first line of dialogue in the book, at least my book. He wrote the entire thing in six weeks, illustrations and all, in time for the book to go on the shelves on December 19th, which is, you know, tomorrow <laughs> when we're recording. <laughs> Um, the entire stock was sold out by Christmas Eve, and Dickens needed the money. His publishers were threatening to drop his monthly pay from £200 a month to 150 or a drop from about £30,000 to £22,500. This is a month. Yeah. This is a month. Uh, for our American listeners, that's 34800 to 26100 Again, that's in a month. That top number is more than what I make in a year. 
just let that sink in for a moment. Anyway, A Christmas Carol. It got Dickens out of debt and earned him more when he began to do public readings of his works. Now, and on one of his previous tours, before he wrote A Christmas Carol, um, we learned in our Halloween special that he met Edgar Allan Poe in 1842. And so that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Back to actually A Christmas Carol. You keep being like, back to A Christmas Carol, then okay. two minutes later, I'm back to A Christmas really, Carol. Really, this time, though, we're in A Christmas Carol, okay? I have really bad ADD. We've discussed this. Yes. I give her shit for it, but it's that's just Molly. We love her. <laughs> we open with the fact, for two pages we are told, that Jacob Marley is dead. Dead is the proverbial doornail, and there's proof to that to that fact everywhere. The entire first part of Stave One, the book has a total of five, is just about how miserly old Marley was and how Ebenezer Scrooge was just as bad, if not worse. He doesn't let his currently unnamed assistant add more coal to his tiny fire, although the long-winded descriptor words tell us that it's unequivocally freezing both inside and out. Scrooge turns away his cheerful but poor nephew, shunning a gathering for Christmas, then also turns away alms collectors, stating that the poor should either go to the workhouses or prisons, as he already supports those with his taxes. The collectors tell him many would rather die than go there, and he states then they should die (laughs) and decrease the surplus population. Workhouses for the poor in Victorian England, and even later under Edward, were horrible, horrible places. It turns my stomach to even think about them. So Scrooge is just blithely answering the alms collectors this way. Horrible, irredeemable person, which is exactly what Dickens was trying to portray. Mm -hmm. Scrooge heads home to his empty house for his meager dinner. He has a head cold, so it's gruel. But when he gets there for the briefest moment, he thinks his door knocker is Jacob Marley's face. Scrooge dismisses this as tosh until later that night when Marley's ghost, who at first he thinks is a hallucination brought on by his cold and bad food, comes to visit. My favorite line ever. It's like, you could be a, a, a bit of bad beef or a blob of mustard. I'm just like, it's hysterical. Michael Caine even uses that exact line in A Muppet's Christmas Carol. It's beautiful. He's, uh, Marley is dragging massive chains forged of his own greed and tells Scrooge that his own chain was just as massive seven years ago when Marley died. So imagine what his looks like now. Marley tells a disbelieving Scrooge that he'll be visited by three spirits, and these spirits are his only hope of salvation, before dragging Scrooge to the window and showing him other lost souls in chains, some of whom Scrooge knows. When Marley finally leaves, Scrooge is so terrified and tired that he collapses into bed without even changing. And thus ends stave one. Stave two opens with Scrooge awakening at midnight, which he finds odd since he went to bed at half past two. After a 45-minute freakout, he decides to stay up till 1 to prove Marley wrong. When the clock finally chimes 1, Scrooge, Scrooge's bed curtains are drawn back by an odd, childlike, and yet old glowing creature. The figure is strong but delicate, basically glowing and carrying a holly branch. Oddest of all, it has a flame coming out of the top of its head, and as a cap, it carries a candle snuffer. The creature introduces itself as the ghost of Christmas past, specifically Scrooge's past. The spirit draws him out of bed and despite protests, draws him literally through the window and takes him flying back through time to Scrooge's childhood. The ghost tells him the people here are just shadows of things that have been and they can't see the two of them. 
Then the spirit takes Scrooge to a nearby empty schoolhouse where a solitary boy, Scrooge, sits. He's reading books, and current Scrooge has vivid, hallu vivid hallucinations of the characters as his younger self reads. He calls himself a poor boy and then confesses to the spirit that she, he should have liked to give something to the young boy who'd come caroling at his door that day. It's the first time we really see Scrooge soften to anyone but himself. The spirit then shifts them to the same place, but a few years down the road. Scrooge's younger sister comes in, mother of his nephew, and says she's come to take him home for Christmas. Their father has finally relented and is allowing him to come home, apparently for the first time in quite a while. After mentioning how frail his sister had been, the spirit whisks him away, this time to when Scrooge's, Scrooge was an apprentice with Fezziwig. Fezziwig closes up the shop, clears the floor, and gets ready for a party. Everyone, including the servants, come to celebrate. There's lots of food and dancing, but the party breaks up at 11. Current Scrooge praises old Fezziwig, remembering he always had a kind word for him, and he wishes he could speak with his current clerk. We speed forward in time as the spirit's time grows short, and this time we don't see young Scrooge as a lonely, innocent, or happy apprentice, but as a man who has begun his money addiction. He sits with a woman, who we learn is Scrooge's fiance. She's basically telling him they can break it off, as they were betrothed when they were young and content to be poor. She still is, but Scrooge loves money more than her. She releases him from their promise for the love of the man he once was. Scrooge begs the spirit to take him home. It's too painful, but the spirit has one more memory to show him. The spirit takes him to a happy home filled with love and laughter, and it's his former fiance's house with her new husband. He tells her he's seen Scrooge. Old Marley is on his deathbed, yet Scrooge is still in the office, working, all alone in the world. At this, Scrooge begs the spirit to take him home. The spirit tells him that these things have been. There's nothing they can do to change them. Scrooge begs again to be taken home. Instead, the spirit's flame grows brighter, and then it drops its snuff cap on its head. Scrooge pushes it down with all his might and winds up back in his own bed. That's aggressive. So he's like actively killing the spirit and then <clears throat> wakes up in bed, strangling his pillow. Traumatic. <laughs> Stave three starts with Scrooge realizing it's still one in the morning. He looks around for the second of Marley's ghosts, but no one appears. Eventually, he is driven to get up and goes to into his adjoining room, which has been transformed. The fire is roaring, the walls are decorated, and there's piles of food everywhere, but especially in the shape of a throne. On this food throne sits a jolly giant, holding a torch shaped like a cornucopia. He's wildly inappropriately dressed for both the season and the era, and announces himself to be the ghost of Christmas present. Scrooge touches his robe, and instead of flying, they move horizontally in time. The room changes around them rather than them going anywhere. So it's like one of, it's like in Hamilton and Satisfied, where everything kind of like swirls kind around Kind of, her. yeah. Okay. There's extremely long descriptions of the food and plenty available to folks with money, but the spirit is more interested in the poorest of the poor coming out for church services. There's a bit that honestly confuses me about Scrooge blaming the spirit for denying the poor something. I honestly, I think it was 2 a.m. when I was reading that part, and yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Christmas present takes 
Scrooge to his clerk's house, and the ghost blesses it. This confuses Scrooge, because why would someone living on only 15 bob a week, that's $2,252.40 a week today in pounds, or $2,725.58 a week. More than I make in a month. They're like, oh, look at these poor people. And we're like, really? Really? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, but why do these poor people need a blessing? Shouldn't he save it for people who make more? Which I take home about a grand twice a month. <laughs> I want Bob Cratchit's wages. And I'm not joking. Anyway, Cratchit's wife and children are settling, are setting the table and cooking while waiting for Bob and little tiny Tim. We learn Tim uses a crutch and wears an iron frame for support. And that sounds like polio to me, which is my reminder to everyone to get fucking vaccinated, please. Vaccines cause adults. Not is autism. Your yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite shirts. <laughs> um... The Cratchits feast on a grand Christmas dinner, made grand by their love for each other. They move through dessert, and then we get the iconic line, God bless us, everyone. Which everyone uses as, like, the end quote. Well, it is the end quote, too. They just repeat. We'll get it there. Okay. Scrooge asks the spirit if Tim will live, but his hopes are dashed. The spirit says if the future isn't changed, there will be an empty seat at the table. Scrooge then gets his words from earlier thrown back at him. If he'd be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. This, of course, shames Scrooge a lot. Shame, shame, shame. Stop. <laughs> Keep, stop going on the little tangents and go on the story. <laughs> Cratchit then names Scrooge as provider of the feast and his wife gets pissed. Scrooge sits on all his money, and here we are, scraping together a feast. Fuck him, which is not actually her words, but what it boils down to. They talk more, Tim sings a song, and then Scrooge and Spirit leave. They travel to some pretty dismal places. The Spirit showing Cr Scrooge, even the most miserable people, happily celebrate Christmas. And they wind up at Scrooge's nephew's place. He and his friends are laughing and having a gay old time. Scrooge is enjoying the laughter until he realizes... That they're laughing at him. Scrooge's nephew says that no matter what, he always tries to be nice to Scrooge, if only to make him happy enough to leave Cratchit 50 pounds when he kicks it. They play games and again laugh at Scrooge, calling him a disagreeable savage and growling animal. They travel some more, and Scrooge notes that the spirit is much older than he was. The spirit tells him his life only lasts the night. That's when Scrooge notices two creepy children peering out from under the spirit's robe. They're described as wretched, frightful, hideous, and miserable. The spirit tells Scrooge the boy is ignorance. The girl is want. He warns him to beware the children, especially the boy, because ignorance will lead to doom. When Scrooge asks the spirit if the children have nowhere to go, again his words are thrown back in his face. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? The clock strikes midnight again, and the spirit is gone. At the last toll of the bell, Scrooge remembers Marley's word about three spirits and looks up to see a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. 
Say four begins with Scrooge falling to his knees before the spirit. This one doesn't speak. So through the world's creepiest game of 20 questions, Scrooge learned that yes, this is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And he's there to show Scrooge what will happen if nothing changes. Scrooge follows the specter into town where he overhears people he knows talking about a man who's died and how cheap his funeral will be. They doubt anyone will even go to it. Scrooge looks around for himself because with the first ghost he saw himself and with the second he was talked about, but he can't find himself anywhere. Scrooge also dislikes it when the specter watches him. It kind of freaks him out a little bit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Especially because he's like buried in a hood, so you can't actually see his face, but you can just feel him watching him. The spirit takes him to the cesspit, the dredges of society, and a cheap resale shop. Four people are there. The shop owner, the laundress, the charwoman, and the undertaker. The undertaker produces a few small items, the laundress linens and some clothes, and a few silver items. The charwoman brings bed curtains and blankets. Scrooge looks on in disgust as they discuss the price of a man's things. Scrooge asks the spirit to take him away. He understands now that this could be a similar fate to his own if he doesn't change his ways. The spirit takes him to the room of the dead man and points Scrooge to the head of the bed where the dead man still lies. He's so freaked out by this, he asks the spirit to take him to someone, anyone who feels any emotion for the man's death. The spirit takes him to a small place where a family is waiting to hear if they can get an extension on their rent. When they find out the man is dead, they're relieved. The dead man was their landlord. So Scrooge asks to see someone saddened by the man's death. The spirit takes him to the Cratchits. Tiny Tim is dead, and Bob is taking longer to get home. He'd been at Tim's grave. He mentions having talked with Scrooge's nephew, who offered them any help he could. Scrooge knows their time together is drawing to a close, and asks the spirit to tell him who the dead man was. In response, the spirit takes him to a graveyard. The phantom points to a stone, and Scrooge asks him one more question before he looks, wanting to know if these are things that will be or only may be. The spirit just keeps pointing at the grave where Ebenezer Scrooge reads his own name. <laughs> Scrooge begs and pleads with the spirit, saying he's a changed man because of this night, these visits. He begs to have the writing on the stone sponged away. In his fervor, he grabs the specter's hand, and the phantom shrinks, distorts, and turns into a bedpost. <laughs> Lindsay's face right now, y'all! <laughs> I've read it! I read it in the Christmas literature class, but it's been a hot minute! <laughs> Stave 5 begins with Scrooge overjoyed to be in his own room. He goes around, happier than he's been in a long time, overjoyed to find his things still there, bed curtains and all. Not knowing if today is even still today, given the time travel nonsense that was happening, Scrooge leans out his window and asks a young boy what day it is, to which he gets the reply that it's Christmas Day, of course. He asks the boy to bring the giant prize-winning turkey to him in five minutes, and he'll give him a huge tip. He decides to send it to Bob Cratchit's, delighted that he wouldn't know who sent it, and by cab, no less. So imagine, you're in your little house, your two-bedroom house, with your family and some dude knocks on your door and it's a cab driver delivering a 50 pound turkey just just imagine that <laughs> he 
He cleans himself up, dresses in his best clothes, and walks out, greeting everyone he sees. He comes across the men who'd been asking for donations the day before and gives them a donation that blows the pants off the men. He goes to church and walks the streets all morning, and then in the afternoon he takes his nephew up on the invitation to dinner. Everyone catches Scrooge's infectious good mood, and they have a grand old time. The next morning, bright and early, Scrooge is determined to beat Cratchit to the office in order to catch the clerk being late. He does, and faking his old grumpiness, Scrooge calls him on to the carpet. Bob is pleading to keep his job, and Scrooge can't contain it anymore. He raises Cratchit's salary, <laughs> offers to assist the family, and gives him a much grander coal allowance. He takes home two grand a week, and he raises it. Please let that be a Christmas gift to me! Please, the government <laughs> in our city? Not happening. So Scrooge became like a second father to Tiny Tim, who did not die, and he became a better person all around. He had no further interventions with the spirits and kept Christmas alive in his heart all year long. The book ends with this quote, May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. All right, so as many of you know, Lindsay and I record episodes in advance. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to do that for like a while, a couple two months. months. Yeah. And here's the thing. We had gotten like four or five episodes ahead by the time we started releasing. And this holiday episode um, is coming out on the December 30. 31st. And we are recording it on the 18th. So, so. that is a very much smaller margin than we intended to start off with. But both of our lives are getting very intense yeah right now. so in november i had to dog sit for like 15 days wound up having multiple panic attacks in that time period which just kind of threw everything off and then i got sick with a virus not the virus um <laughs> just you know uh, but I got a virus, and then because of my lowered immune system, got the flu, so that's not fun. Yeah. Um, so. Lindsay also started a new job, which is fantastic. I work at an actual library now, people. This podcast was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and I tried to get a job at the library, and that didn't happen, so, you know, upset about that, but we're trucking on through. Um, my family has also been dealing with some pretty severe health issues. Um, my dad was in the hospital for a couple of days. Um, and it's just, it's just been a lot. Yeah. So we are going to put out, we're going to do a blooper episode. So we are going to do the blooper episode. We were saving it for April Fool's, but as a apology <laughs> present and a thank you for sticking with us through this, we're going to release it early. Yes. Um, because we have plenty of material for it. Oh my gosh. We have been <laughs> harvesting our foolishness. So but this is not goodbye. This is just, we need to take some time, get settled into our new routines, and then build back up our cache of episodes in the future so we can oh, release regularly. For I've forgotten. Guys. I completely forgot Nano. We both did uh, National Novel Writing Month. Oh my gosh. It was <laughs> so, great. Yeah. That was great, but um, it kind of ate into our time a lot. So, yeah. And our energy for just writing and talking and coming up with ideas. Like, yeah. It was because, you know, we, we write these reviews and these uh, summaries and things. So, you know, trying to, to 
write an entire novel in the month of November and also write book reviews kind of it was yeah so yeah but we will we will be coming back um don't know exactly when but hopefully we'll figure out we might be able to um you know get back into our like having more by recording if we start recording maybe like two episodes like yeah. at a time that way not forever obviously yeah just but to, just to get us ahead and hopefully even if we're not back like january february march hopefully we can still do our lord of the rings special in april a hundred percent no matter what's happening we're doing the lord <laughs> of the rings special and you know what that might if it hopefully it does not take us that long but if it does i want that to be our grand reintroduction yes we can we can probably do that because that'll be like three episodes yeah so i again hopefully we are back before then but thank you guys for sticking with us and you know enjoying two really weird <laughs> nerdy people just ranting about random books and topics yeah we appreciate it a lot